My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. exist, though they may not be hiding under cloak of night, preying on the unlucky nocturnal inhabitants of some Romanian village or Louisiana backwater. They have nine to five jobs, they watch TV, they go out to eat, yet they have an insatiable thirst for blood. So who are these real-life vampires? Today, we are joined by Dr. John Edgar Browning to discuss the veracity of vampires, Dracula and beyond. You are listening to this special edition swapcast of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy and Rising from the Ashes podcast. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Dr. John Edgar Browning. I would think they're just like me. They read a lot of vampire books or studies and they just went one step further that I didn't go, which is, hey, maybe I should just drink blood and maybe it'll make me feel better or make me feel cool or feel like I'm a vampire. But that wasn't the case at all. I was baffled by how little the vampires I met knew about vampire history or the vampire and pop culture. I mean, True Blood had just started right after I had started my study and they didn't even watch True Blood. So I was just, there was only one vampire that I met who was learned in these studies, but the other ones knew nothing. And the same applied to Buffalo. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. So then when I learned more, each of them shared a very, very, very similar story. And it's not because they all just kind of got in cahoots with each other and said, well, when John asked this or that, this is what we say. Each of them had a story and many of them weren't even from Louisiana. I think only one of them was. And they all had different stories from Indiana or from some town in Georgia or some town in Louisiana where they came in contact with blood quite by accident.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Rising from the Ashes Swap Caster Rooney with another amazing guest today. Roman organized this fantastic interview with John Edgar Browning. He is a PhD a professor at uh, what college, Roman? At the Georgia University of Technology. Let me actually just really quickly. I know he got his alma mater at FSU. And where is he currently? Yep, at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Of technology. <laughs> nope, I'm a dirty liar. Okay, sorry. Savannah College of Art and Design in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm, okay, cool. Well, either way, wherever he is, he is <laughs> specializing in something really interesting. That is, you know, the horror genre, specifically vampires in film, literature, and culture. And we didn't just talk about fiction. We actually spent the majority of our time here today talking about the reality of vampirism and how there mm -hmm. are real-life vampires walking among us, John Edgar Browning actually participated in William Shatner's Unexplained series where he had a vampire actually draw blood from him and, and drink it. So if you want to hear more about that, stay tuned for the rest of this conversation. It gets really interesting. Of course, I'm Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Roman here is one of two awesome co-hosts on the Rising from the Ashes podcast, and he is one of four, along with yours truly, on Esoteric America. That's right, Tara, Chad, Roman, and I, we dive into the lost esoteric history of these great United States, one location at a time. So if you want to join in, please check it out and let us know in the comments where we should look next. We're thinking somewhere in California, Washington, mm -hmm. maybe Hawaii. We don't know yet Roman's choice for this one, but we want your suggestions for future episodes. So please get in touch with us. Let us know where you live. Let us know the weird things going on in your backyard. And we might just talk about that location on the next series for Esoteric America. I just spoke a lot there, Roman. You want to say anything before we get into this episode? Moon Mysteries. Okay. Mm -hmm. If I have to plug anything, it's, and I love you, and I love Dan. Dan, my wonderful partner, my uh, co-host, my original podcast daddy. We, we, I am the podcast mommy. We, we ventured <laughs> and married each other and found ourselves wed upon rising from the ashes. But... I love Moon Mysteries. It's this show that I do with Kaylee Burkana, an astrologer, and we go deep into the mysteries specifically of the moon. Now, it's a brand new show. We don't have a lot of episodes out, but the ones that we do are incredibly fascinating. We got great feedback on it. I just posted an episode with Maria Wheatley, who is an incredible... A prolific author on elongated skulls, Stonehenge, and also the mysteries of the dark moon and the triple goddesses, which is something that fascinates me. I am one of the many lovers of Hakate. We've made love in the ethereal realm many times. And anywho, check out Moon Mysteries. Really excited to get into this chat today, sir. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right on. Rock and roll. 
folks. Thank you so much for being here. If you're subscribed on Rising from the Ashes, make sure you go and check out My Family Thinks I'm Crazy and vice versa. If you're here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, go and check out Rising from the Ashes and all of the other shows that we do, Esoteric America, and enjoy this conversation with John Edgar Browning. Everybody, welcome to yet again another episode on vampirism. It's Romy here from Rising from the Ashes. I am greatly joined with my awesome buddy Mark from my family. Thanks, I'm crazy. What's going on, Mark? Hello, glad to be here. And we have a fantastic guest today diving into this strange reality of vampirism. I'm really grateful you invited me to be here, Roman. Well, I'm I'm glad that, that we're here because with our last chat with Dr. Michael Bell, we got really deep into the folklore of these stories and the deep history of it in America, specifically in the Northeast America. And then we we were introduced to John Browning's work through Dr. Michael Bell. So we reached out and he John was so willing and accepting to have a conversation. And I'm glad this is happening because his research is even deeper into some more strange areas of this i'm talking real vampires in the sense of the word of the blood so john browning john edgar browning i apologize how are you doing today sir i'm doing pretty well it's let's see today is tuesday and i have a, usually a four-day week because of the way my campus is so i'm essentially on my at my hump day so this is good <laughs> There's I we we love the hump days because the uh, the mounds are big important to us so the, right. the hump the mound getting over that hill, right, um, right. so okay we have to we have to start in the beginning we have to how did you find yourself deep into this research and you know obviously you have a doctorate in in a lot of these studies but before school like when when you were growing up if you don't mind sharing how did you find yourself getting interested into these topics. Sure, sure. This is the always the $64,000 question I get asked. And it's taken me years to, to find the best way to answer it and to kind of psychoanalyze myself. But yeah, but it, it kind of all starts when I was young. I grew up in the 80s and I had those typical 80s parents that didn't mind showing their children, my brothers and me, all kinds of films, especially horror films. So, you know, I'm, I haven't even started kindergarten yet and I'm already watching every, you know, Friday the 13th that was out at that point. And by that point, there were only about four of them, which just shows you how old I am. But <laughs> yeah, I just, I grew up watching horror movies. And the reason it was so fun for us and affordable is because it was affordable. My family didn't have a whole lot of money, but eventually when VCRs became inexpensive enough that even families growing up in very you know small means, very small households could afford them, that's what we did. And we did it so that my dad could either tape movies off the television, because that's when you had to look at I mean, we couldn't even afford the TV guy, so we'd have the newspaper, which, of course, would give you the listings of everything playing that week. But we also had mom-and-pop stores that opened up everywhere. This is long before Hollywood Video were blockbuster. And, yeah, my dad would bring home a lot of different kinds of horror movies, and we'd all watch them together, and I would scare the 
pants off myself and probably had chronic nightmares <laughs> growing up. But but during that time, even though my brothers and I, were, we loved all kinds of horror movies, especially vampire movies and Dracula movies, I was especially drawn to those for whatever reason. And uh, I just kind of stuck with it. And even though I continued to love horror movies, vampires and Dracula were my ultimate favorites. And anyway, around 92, the same year Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, which I saw at the theater like four or five times when I was 12. My mother happened to be at Kmart, I think it was, in a town called Hermitage in Tennessee, and she bought me a nonfiction book about Dracula in the cinema and Dracula in Romanian history with Vlad Dracula and so on and so forth, and she brought it home, and I just was enamored by it because I was already enamored by Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola film by Jim Hart, who's now a good friend of mine, which I'm really happy about because he's a wonderful dude and his film changed my life. But anyway, I digress. That was a pivotal moment for me. I started collecting. I feel like I I collected fewer toys then and started buying nonfiction books about horror movies, about vampires, about Dracula. And I started becoming a really early 12-year-old academic. And uh, the collection grew from there steadily and steadily. With what little money I had, I would look for these books. And anyway, to sum it all up, I went to college and as an undergrad, I met a professor who was interested in the fact that I was interested in vampires because she was interested in Frankenstein and the feminine monstrous. And she showed me the ropes on how to write a query letter and how to write a proposal for a book and how to write professionally, at least academically about these kinds of subjects. Because even though I'd been collecting nonfiction books, it never occurred to me that I too could do that. And she showed me how to do it. And so right off the bat, with her help, I just started getting into writing and publishing on these topics very early in my academic career. And my first, I think it's three books, were co-edited or co-authored with her. And then the other remaining 17 books, two of which will be coming out soon, but the other ones are all all my babies. So some of them I've co-authored or co-edited with other people, but they all basically focus on horror movies and especially vampires and Dracula and the like. And then there's another about 90 shorter works of essays, reviews, whatnot, published in various journals and magazines, encyclopedias, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's very, that's, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of writing. <laughs> that's a very prolific portfolio there. And so, okay. You, you had the, the introduction into these horror movies, this genre at a very young age. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. What do you think about our culture as a whole that brings horror genre to the media? Like, what is it about the human psyche that you have found over your years of research that is drawn to these topics, especially in media and the visual media? Well, you know, and I'm not the first to say this and others have written on it long before I ever spoke about it or lectured on it, but uh, anthropologists and archeologists, folklorists, and essentially people in the social sciences who study behavior, especially looking at cave drawings and whatnot, they're fairly certain if, if culture is anything like it has become, if they look back even 5,000 years, they can assume that very similar circumstances happened 10, 15, 20, 30,000 years or more. But this, the telling of stories that involve misshapen beasts or these things there in the dark lurking have probably been around for a very, very long time. And more than likely, according to experts, they probably served a very important utility mm. if, if different kinds of nomadic peoples, be that in the Americas or in Europe, 
are kind of creating different roles in terms of gender, what children are supposed to do, what females are supposed to do, mainly, probably, or at least potentially, not always, the protection of female bodies because they realize that they're magical because they produce children, <laughs> something that the gods give them this ability to do. They obviously, the men didn't know that it was, you know, coming from them. But, and the men are the ones who, who are not, you know, old or enfeebled go and do the hunting for game and if you let's say you get hurt along the way and you do bring back let's say a small boar you can always say there was a larger boar there protecting it or fighting along with it or let's say you come home empty-handed you can tell stories about boars that were four times the size with five tusks and these kinds of stories had a utility for the tellers Mm -hmm. they made them appear stronger bigger, more masculine, if you will. And they essentially kind of legitimized the authority or power they would have held over the people in their clan or their group. And it also was a really good kind of cautionary story for the people in their group, the clan, to stay at the camp, to stay around the fire. Don't leave and go beyond the light of the fire where there are you know nocturnal creatures who are on the hunt. So again, you see two utilities there in terms of protecting the people, but also kind of legitimizing the power and might of the people telling the stories. The same, the same sort of thing you might see kind of evolving with the Greek and Roman period with the Colosseums, but rather than the people in the audience, the men going and doing the hunting, they're watching the hunting happening. And there are, of course, written accounts by philosophers and others who attended these big events at the Colosseums, kind of the men standing and pointing at the display of the brutality of the men fighting the animals or fighting each other. And they're pointing out that the ladies with them, the women saying, look, this is, this is what we do. This is what it's all about. And right. And of course the men just loving it and standing and the women sitting down. And of course the women are at this point, you know, quote unquote, adoring the men for doing this kind of thing and showing this bravery. And it's this idea of, of bread and circus, which is to keep people in line and keep them from getting feisty. You give them bread, food, and you give them circus, these kind of Coliseum events. And, the same sort of thing has kind of evolved even to where we see football games. So we have these, you know, big, masculine, strong men doing these kinds of things. And of course, in the sidelines, we have those same Greek women, but now they're wearing skirts. And of course, they're doing the cheering and this showing this adoration for the players. So it really all boils down to this, this need to see these kinds of fights. But of course, that's just one way of looking at it. There are others, too, that it, it, perhaps it links into... The idea that uh, that humankind eventually, once we began to eat enough meat and our brains grew to the point where we would become, you know, w- one might say in our own respect, the most intelligent species on the planet. But at that point, when you begin to be, be develop very high thinking abilities, you begin to to consider your own your own end, your own death, your your own life, and you begin asking questions like, "What are we doing here? Like, is this all we're here for? Is to eat? You know, screw." crap and die. I mean, is that all we really do? Because that's what all these other animals are doing. So creating these kinds of mythologies and and theologies around you helps you kind of understand that death is not the end. And even though you're wondering, what does it do with monsters? Well, believing in monsters, something out there, something extraordinary beyond your conception of ideas, conception of life is one more kind of way of, of kind of legitimizing that there is something else Afterwards, after death, there is something out there that that we can look forward to and that the end and the dirt, the earth is not the only thing we have to look forward to. So it it almost legitimizes that we are not just here again to eat, 
sleep, screw, crap, and die. That there's something else beyond. To fight, something to fight for, right? right. Some, something l- right. lurking in the shadows to potentially protect your your family from and right. have have a deeper meaning. Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, you know, the directors might be able to get some thrill of scaring yeah. the bejeebies out of children and people because oh, yeah. I watched Chucky at a very young age too, and that really got. I was I couldn't go to the bathroom for a long time. I couldn't sit on the toilet because I thought Chucky was going to climb up and stab me in the butt. So, anyways, that's it. they did. They I, I could only imagine if we could go to every person that grew up watching those movies and ask them like the type of terrors that they had afterwards. Mm-hmm. We could create a great book. You know, this just shows you how demented my my brothers and I were when we saw Chucky when it first came out. I believe that was around. It was 88, 89, or 90, or 91, 92, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time it came out, we had already seen so many horror movies that we we liked the movie in principle, but it was it was laughable to us because we had seen so many greater, bigger horrors. Mm-hmm. You know, it, but Chucky's a great intro film if you're not used to seeing horror, then it, and if you're younger than we were, that it's it's terrifying. But for us, we just we just thought it was cute. <laughs> we thought it was cute. It's child's <laughs> play, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, geez. Okay. So <clears throat> there's these mythological stories of vampires and Dracula, and, but it's also deeply embedded and rooted into mythology of many ancient cultures that there's always been a blood sucking and a lurking in the shadows. Of course, what, what they do in the shadows of vampires. And so my earliest finding of, of this in the story that I was able to find at the earliest seed of vampirism was the stories of Lilith, Lilith and the Lilites were known to be a vampire women casted out from the Garden of Eden. What is what is some of the the earliest mythological takes that you were able to find on vampirism and ancient cultures? Well, certainly the period you're talking about with the story of Lilith or to she being the the actual first wife of Adam. But as Dr. J. Gordon Melton, who has been studying vampires and writing about them even longer than Michael Bell and I have. He's also a religious studies scholar of, of important note. But anyway, he likes to, to call her kind of the first feminist because she wanted to have the more dominant role in bed. She wanted to essentially sit on top of Adam. And of course, that role was too kind of, or perhaps it was too, you know, feminizing for him who knows but it was definitely not a dominant role for him and in, in, in their world of that period so he had or god threw Lilith out of the garden and in doing so he also killed whatever children that she had had with adam and uh, she became this creature in the same time under god's power and this creature would go and drink the blood of or consume and slash kill the the, the children of, of Adam from his other wives and, and ancestors. And of course this story, and as well as many others that came afterwards, in fact, there probably are some before that we just haven't found documentation for yet, but they all have one thing in common. And I'm not just talking about this period, antiquity or before, but also later in cultures that are, have nothing to do with Christianity, even cultures in the Americas with native Americans with the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. But often these stories are linked by the people's needing some way of, of figuring out why certain kinds of death happen and who to blame for it and what they can do to protect themselves. They need some way of explaining why this keeps happening. And it would make sense because there's death that's going to happen in all of these cultures. That's the big link. And all of these countries, these cultures also figured out that blood was very important 
blood was bright, if too much of it flowed out of your arm, then you would die. So therefore, if, you know, if you can put the blood back in or if someone else takes the blood, then they in fact receive your life and could live longer. So that's really kind of the, those two things that the taking of blood, the importance of blood in sustaining life and the need to explain why certain kinds of deaths occur, which of course would happen a lot with children, the, the, the need for creating and, and, you know, envisaging these vampiric creatures it makes a lot of sense. And it also means under, it's understandable why it explains why there's so many variations on the vampire creature. They don't all look the same. Lilith was something, someone who drank blood and ate meat, but she also had wings and <laughs> looked, you know, ghastly, but there are other creatures ex- in the Philippines, for example, or Malaysia where, you know, the whole head detaches from the body with the entrails and spinal column hanging down from the head and it floats around. And this was a way of explaining how this creature comes to feed on pregnant women or newborn babies. And of course it takes blood. So all of it is really kind of linked in that way in my own studies. Yikes. That's graphic. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very. Yeah. Headless, headless, but has the spine. Huh? Interesting. Yep. Yep. And her entrails, all of us just hanging down from the head. So imagine being a little kid or a mother who just gave birth and suddenly you see this head floating into the room with the entrails hanging down and the thing is hideous looking and it wants the blood Mm. of your child or wants to eat your child in its entirety. Mm. I believe that the name is the Lango or the Manalango. They're they're very similar uh, creatures in Malaysia and the Philippines. That's that, so, and even having that type of archetype or this type of rumor go around in the story that is seemingly in almost every culture, because the story of Lilith being able to her like redemption was like, okay, you know, you can you can be around, but you're going to have to, you know, we get to devour so many of your children a day and she like mm-hmm. there's a stories of like her eating a hundred thousand children a day of, of Lilith's children dying. And so this mothers that are just giving birth, going through this traumatic experience, having dumps of chemicals in their body and going through a bunch of exerted stress, maybe even being at the brink of really, really tired might even have actual visuals of, of like this Lilithian or Lilithu type of archetype or creature coming to maybe take their child from them. That's That's really crazy. It must've been terrifying because I mean, you, 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 you have to find, at least I would, I want to find people have an instinct to find some cause for something happening. And of course, what they imagine is something that is the most hideous. Of course, that would happen with cultures that don't have advancements in medicine yet. It's the same reason why Eastern European villagers and even villagers in England a thousand years ago would have to find ways of explaining deaths in families, deaths in villages. And when you exhume the body of the suspected vampire, when you don't understand decompositional science and you see all these different sort of signs, quote unquote signs of that the vampire, it really is there, then you're going to make the same assumptions. So it's typically a lack of, of, of science, understanding the way the body works that will lead to people making these kinds of assumptions. But again, it makes sense for there to be this belief in a vampiric type creature and all these very disparate cultures. Because the one thing that links them all is the need to have something explained that involves death and the understanding that blood is very, very important to the human body. And there were even, you know, notation signs, rituals of people's who are so sad that someone dies that when they're burying the person, you know, the women and men are cutting themselves at the funeral and, and 
tossing their blood onto the grave in the hopes that it will give some kind of vitality back to the person that they love so they'll come back. So understanding the, the importance of blood has always been kind of a, wow. a hallmark of these various cultures. Well, and I do want to ask you about the association with animals because the three species of vampire bat are native to the new world. And I'm wondering, has there been a association with vampires and bats going, you know, prior to the Columbus, you know, expedition prior to Western science, finding all of these new species in the new world, would there be a, a connection there with the, the bat? And I mean, the fact that well, these they, bats actually suck blood, it's like kind of right. curious, right? Right. I, I can't give you all the details, but at one point in my in my research, I've come across, I think it's either a kind of creature, probably both. There is a creature and a god belonging to one of the South American kingdoms, whether it be the Aztecs or Mayans. But the belief in a vampiric bat type creature was prominent among one of these peoples. And one of these peoples, it may even be the same one, probably not, also believed in a vampire blood drinking type god. Again, I can't give you the details because I can't remember them right off. But aside from that, what's interesting is that the the vampire of, of Eastern Europe, of Central Eastern Europe, was prevalent in the 1700s and 1600s, late 1600s and the 1700s, and uh, into the early 1800s even. And when there were expeditions to Central and South America by various sailors on science expeditions, they discovered this tiny bat. It's not huge, it's small, which is they would later call the vampire bat, but they gave it the name vampire bat based on the the vampire or revenant of Eastern Europe. So in other words, the, the vampires of, of Eastern European folklore gave its name to the vampire bat. But what's really peculiar here and fascinating is that it was the vampire bat that gave its fangs to the vampire of literature because Vampires in Eastern Europe, the, the, the vampires that you dug up, or even a thousand years earlier, the vampires that were happening in, in England and in Ireland, so on and so forth, none of them really had teeth. Okay, there are lots of creatures and other kinds of cultures, vampiric creatures that had long fangs or tusks, but the vampire in Eastern Europe didn't have fangs, nor did the one in, in Ireland or England. So whenever the, the vampire made its jump from folklore to literature around the late 18-teens with Polidori is the vampire. It was obvious to the readers. They, they didn't talk about the fangs of Count Riven or Ruthven, but there were marks left on the neck of some of the victims. And that's when the villagers screamed, vampire, vampire. So the vampire bat was really in vogue upon its discovery in the 18 teens, early 18 teens, the point where you, you saw articles all the time in newspapers about the discovery of this vampire bat. And now it's literally giving its fangs to the vampire of literature. And there was such an obsession with this bat that it became obsessive. I mean, it, the, the, the people, there was a hysteria all across Europe where they thought they were seeing vampire bats and they started naming new quasi pseudo species, subspecies of vampire bats in Europe even though they didn't drink blood and they were three times, four times the size of a actual vampire bat. And people were going out trying to hunt them 
and kill them. And these just these poor bats probably eat insects, but mm-hmm. that's how big the craze got. And so finally the science community is like, no, 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 no. There are only vampire bats essentially in Central America. None of them are in Europe, especially not these huge ones you see. They're, you know, literally insect eaters. So leave them alone. They're not going to hurt you. But yeah. the, the, the cat was the cat was out of the bag at that point. People were scared to death of oh. bats. And they'd already been scared of bats because bats were nocturnal. And anything that came out at night was considered in, in many ways kind of satanic or belonging to to you know the, the dominions of hell because the nighttime was a very scary point of time for for villagers for right. thousands of years it was a time when you kind of barred yourself up indoors you bolted the windows and so when you see the bats coming out at night the owls the wolves other kinds mm-hmm. of nocturnal creatures that's why we always see them associated with figures of Satan, or if you watch mm-hmm. any early or look at any early versions of Faust and Misophiles, he's always surrounded by wolves, owls, bats, so on and so forth. And like the goddess Hecate, always association with a wolf and well, some and of these before others. Before we before we get too far away from the point that you just made, Doctor Browning, I I think that's so fascinating. I'm glad that you were to to describe that in detail because it's fascinating that there's a creature that survives mainly on tafaji, right? I might not be saying that right, but essentially that's feeding on blood. And, you know, this Mm. concept of the vampire feeding on people's blood, you say it was sort of, you know, contemporary to the discovery of the vampire bat. So my question is prior to that discovery of the vampire bat, was it just energy absorption was it drinking the blood how did they like deem a vampire's attack it it wasn't a bite to the neck until this vampire bat was kind of introduced into the culture right it's it's kind of hard to explain because the belief in vampires was prevalent in europe but it was also very regional in terms of the specifics sometimes the in the same way that that vampire movies will will always kind of change or tweak the mythology to suit the writer's needs it kind of happened that way sometimes from village to village and so for some particular cultures or villages the vampire is coming and and perhaps biting you, perhaps taking the blood from your mouth. It has a way of getting the blood to come out of your mouth, which is why some of these sick victims would have blood around their lips. For others, they're taking the blood, but they're almost taking it ethereally hmm. or and or it's not even the, the corporeal version of the vampire that's taking the blood, the body of the vampire is staying in the grave and they are sending their ethereal spirit to come to you and take the blood that way. And, but they definitely knew or thought it was blood it was taking because, because of the various decompositional signs when they saw the body and it's plump like a tick where they had not been upon burial. Plus there's blood seeping out of the nose, eyes, ears, mouth. They assume it's drank so much that it literally is, is pouring out of its own orifices. There are also vampires that while they're taking blood, they also are taking your energy. And sometimes they do it through sex. They're literally sexing you to death and exhausting you. This is also why, yeah, they, they believe that the vampire, the first person the vampire would come for, if it's a male, would come for its wife, its widow. Or if it's a female, come for its husband. And that typically when that husband or wife is sick, they have these fever dreams where they see their husband visiting them. Of course, it didn't help that these villagers already had a mythology in place for being sick and vampires coming. So in other words, they already kind of knew about it, which would probably help them to have these kinds of visions to begin with. Of course, what they don't know is that 
the sickness that they're suffering from has more to do with proximity and disease factors. So basically, yeah, of course, it, it's going to become part of mythology in Europe that the vampire goes for family and friends because they're the ones who are the closest to the people who are sick. They're all living in the same household or next door. And so they're all going to be getting sick. So that was really how this vampire was spreading out because it wanted to eat or consume its relatives and loved ones, but because there was a disease that was going from person to person. So yeah, that I wish I could give you a really simple answer, but depending on the area of Europe or the world, the vampire was taking its blood in different ways. Mm. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And blood was of course probably synonymous with life force to many exactly. people. So yeah, I mean, whether it was energy absorption in this sort of psychic fashion from beyond the grave or, right. you know, an actual bite to the neck, it's just, it seems odd that this has evolved. And, and Roman actually just sent me a link in the chat to Bat God from South America. So yeah, I'm just, I guess my question w was kind of, I think you answered it, but just to reiterate was like, you know, were bats associated with vampires historically, or was that kind of like a new addition? I think you answered the question yeah, it that was, it is new. It was a new addition. In fact, it was the vampire of Europe that gave its name to the discovery right. of the vampire bat, but then the vampire bat gave its cool fangs <laughs> to the vampire when it jumped ship to literature. And so that's why we have those fangs. Yeah, absolutely. Very fascinating. And even this concept of, you know, protector, guardian during the nighttime, you know, this kind of evolved into the superhero concept. Batman, right, is I've, I've read right. by certain authors you can interpret him esoterically as a sort of golem or a priest who like uses his magical knowledge to create this technology that then he uses to, you know, fight the dark forces. Right. So right. it's kind of interesting that the bat, you know, has taken this weird role esoterically. Well, it's, a, it's an ancient concept to, for there to be a bat god, for example, in South America, who might be there to protect the people from night creatures. I mean, the, the idea of using evil against evil has been around, I mean, since ancient Middle East. I mean, this is why when they do find pendants or, or small emblems signifying Pazuzu, the, the demon from the exorcist, Pazuzu, who I believe, if I recall, was the, the lord of, of the, the, the evil spirits of the south winds or easterly wind i forget which but pazuzu is not a good person but you can wear pazuzu an emblem for pazuzu to scare off other kinds of evil or other kinds of demons that's why they you know roman soldiers if they could wear shields or have belts that would have medusa's face it's the same kind of concept so evil against evil is more powerful than a whole bunch of men with swords so yeah. to speak well, and, and another thing that's fascinating that just occurred to me is that the way that the sort of vampire lent itself to the vampire bat, which then lent its fangs to the sort of, you know, the context of the vampire, we have this same thing going on with people who identify as real vampires. I see you, you've studied people in New Orleans, even Buffalo, New York, who, you know, do this as a sort of lifestyle choice, I guess. And you have to imagine that culture has influenced that decision. They didn't just wake up in a vacuum and think, oh, I'm going to be a vampire. <laughs> you know, they probably read or saw a movie about this subject. Am I right? Well, one would think that that's all of what you said is what I pretty much went into the study thinking I had studied vampires already and written about them for quite a while. 
by the late 2000s when I started started my study with the New Orleans vampire community. And I think I'd say that area of vampire studies for last because I felt it was less important. I thought it was more gimmicky and I had already kind of made my mind up about these people that I had learned about in books for over a decade. And when I was taking a grad class for my doctorate before I transferred up north to Buffalo, I had a grad class on ethnography and I knew even before the class started that I'm definitely knowing grad classes, they're going to have us do some sort of short-term ethnography. And I knew that mine was going to have to be about vampires. Because if I were going to find vampires ever in my life in any part of the, of the country, it's going to be New Orleans or Louisiana. And this is before True Blood, for Christ's sake. So even before True oh, Blood, people associated... shows of all time. Yeah. Everyone associated New Orleans and, and Louisiana with vampires. So anyway, I started my study and it... It will take too long to tell you the whole thing, but eventually uh, when other grad students in my class would be, you know, conducting their field work and going home by five in the afternoon or even by eight o'clock in the afternoon, I think it was one gentleman who was doing one of, of bowlers at a bowling alley. My study was just starting by 10, 11 o'clock at night. I would drive a 50, 55 minutes from Baton Rouge South to New Orleans and I would be just getting started. And I just was trampsing around the French quarter for a couple of months looking for vampires, which is such a stupid thing. How the hell the hell you do that? Well, eventually <laughs> I learned, I learned enough things and I made enough mistakes that eventually I would meet four one night or was five one night at a particular bar in the French quarter. And they didn't go anywhere because many of them gave the wrong contact information, but at least I was smart enough to have them fill out questionnaires right then and there. But luckily for me, there was a special on 2020 news program that involved interviews with some of the New Orleans vampires, which at least that gave me names. And I was able to contact one of them because of that program. And then he and I had coffee at a CC's coffee, which is the prominent coffee brand and shop in Louisiana, especially New Orleans. And yeah, I, thought I was interviewing him the whole time, but really he was also interviewing me to kind of get to see how close I was to the subject and what my thoughts were. And fortunately I didn't elude to him that I felt the way I did, but fortunately over several months, I knew that I had been wrong. And after two years with these folks and being in the field with them, shadowing them, hanging out with them, going to eat with them, going to their houses, recording things. So on, letting them drink my own blood in certain circumstances, it changed my mind about how I thought their origins were and conduct a similar study when I went to Buffalo for two years, two and a half years after transferring from LSU. So, but to get to your question, your, your first comment, basically, yeah, I would think they're just like me. They, they, they read a lot of vampire books or studies and they just went one step further that I didn't go, which is, Hey, maybe I should just drink blood and maybe it'll make me feel better or make me feel cool or feel like I'm a vampire. But that wasn't the case at all. I was baffled by how little the vampires I met knew about vampire history or the vampire and pop culture. I mean, True Blood had just started right after I had started my study and they didn't even watch True Blood. So I was just, there was only one vampire that I met who was learned in these studies, but the other ones knew nothing. And the same applied to Buffalo. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. So then when I learned more, each of them shared a very, very, very similar story. And it's not because they all just kind of got in cahoots with each other and said, well, when John asked this or that, this is what we say. Each of them had a story and many of them weren't even from Louisiana. I think only one of them was. And they all had different stories from Indiana or from some 
town in Georgia or some town in Louisiana where they came in contact with blood quite by accident, typically after puberty this happens. And after puberty, they begin feeling really sluggish or weak. They feel sickly all the time, lethargic. And even if they eat healthily or their parents take them to the doctor, they can't figure out what's wrong with them. And this is not a, a child or you know a young person in puberty who also likes vampire books or likes vampire shows or movies. This is just someone who has some weird kind of illness and somehow they come in contact with blood either accidentally or perhaps instinctually. They just know that when their mom leaves the kitchen and there's some blood tainted liquid at the bottom of a meat pack to drink it. Or perhaps their friend cuts their finger in the old tradition of sucking the blood off your friend's finger or whatever to make it heal quicker. They'll do that instinctually. And when they do that, suddenly it makes them feel mm better and much more healthy. And again, that those kinds of stories and them not being at all interested in vampires derailed any kind of psychosomatic, you know, theme I would have thought was there. They weren't doing it because they thought vampires do it. So I will do it. They did it either naturally or out of accident and it made them feel better. And they continued doing it behind the scenes for years and years and years until later, either through research or they happened to meet someone else, they find there are other people that, that have, you know, go have the same experiences they do that, that feel the same way they do that don't feel well unless they take blood or take psychic energy. And this community has kind of adopted the, the name or word vampire to describe itself. So they could have called themselves anything in the world and it wouldn't have mattered in terms of their physical need for blood. They just chose vampire because it really, it makes the most sense. But in choosing that word, it also meant that people think that they think that they're supernatural or folkloric vampires, which which they don't think at all. And for a time, they then spelt the word vampire differently with a Y to differentiate them from the other vampires, the supernatural vampire. That didn't work. And so some of them, sometimes they would use an I in parentheses and Y, R-E, and vampire. And eventually they adopted human or real vampires. But again, real vampires doesn't often do well with the public because they think that they mean real vampires as in supernatural. And they don't. They mean real as in not fake, not supernatural, not TV, like real, tangible. You can touch them. So the vampire thing is just word for helping them communicate this identity of theirs. But it's, it's completely separate from the word vampire. And it's just the way they are. Who they are, it's how they were born, according to them. And I haven't really experienced or been able to document a reason why. I shouldn't believe what they're telling me. They don't feel what they feel, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Even a lot of really sound doctors will tell you that just because a patient says they're sick and you don't know why or can't measure it doesn't mean that what they're experiencing isn't real. So it just perhaps will take time before we understand why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Well, and it's, it's, it's also a part of like how much is science willing to invest into doing studies for mm -hmm. this, right? Like, are they, is it really a concern <clears throat> for them to, to do these studies? And then will we ever get the answers on the, on that <clears throat> higher echelon of scientific understanding? But it's really interesting going into more, some more, cause I love history. I, I love history. Antiquity, antiquated studies is, is one of my favorite things and brings me quite joy. <laughs> and then looking at different symbolog symbolical things. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of stories that I found in history, riddled throughout history of 
royals families you know needing to have more meat or to have more of an obsession with blood mm. to have more access to medicinal information that, that i guess they would call the peasants or the serfs wouldn't be able to have right like they actually had doctors that could say like well you know what you might need more of this specific thing to get you healthier right. because there's this hemophilia which seemed to be pretty common in the royal families of the past and this term of blue blood came to be because they were you know rather i mean let's be honest they were incest right they wanted to keep the the blood in the family and and so i I just find that really interesting and and wondering if you what you have found with the study of vampires in history and the royal families if they're having any connection to this and being in their castles and right well certainly the the idea of people consuming blood, especially for nourishment, is not anything new. I mean, it goes back thousands and thousands of years. None of them were really calling themselves vampires in the sense they weren't taking that word and adopting it to describe themselves. I mean, the word vampire hasn't really even been around except since the late 16 to early 1700s anyway. But they weren't calling themselves whatever prevalent vampiric creature of the day was for their culture. But they did feel there was real nourishment and real vitality that came from consuming blood. Or in the case of, you know, society's betters, the aristocracy or kings, they got, you know, firsthand access to the best kinds of vitality or or vital liquids and, and, and substances. So, for example, if someone is beheaded or someone is killed after sentencing by the king or queen, they typically, the royal seat would have access to the best part, which is the brain of the person. And the doctors or alchemists, whatever you want to call them at the time, would take parts of the the brain, cook it down, and essentially extract a liquid from it, which often turned out to be yellow. They would reduce it down to this yellow liquid, which probably tasted or smelled weird. But the king, especially on their deathbed, would ask to drink this in the hopes that it was taking the uh, the essence from the person to make them healthier or to make them, you know, prevent their own death. Or if there is an execution, any kind of peasants who are nearby, near the scaffolding, might run up to dip handkerchiefs or something in the blood of the person or mm-hmm. to take one of their bones. And they, too, would try to consume this as a way of kind of ingesting the vital, the vitality of the person killed. Or cultures that for thousands of years have consumed parts of their loved ones who die and they want to kind of, how should I say, honor them and, and, you know, maintain part of the essence of the person to still be there and remain with them in the, in the world of life. So they might consume part of them, which would often lead to something similar to mad cow's disease, disease where you have this shaking fits. And then other cultures would consume the blood or parts of, of great warriors that they defeat in battle as a way of kind of taking on some of their own essence. So, yeah, I guess what I'm getting at here is the idea of drinking blood for these various reasons or consuming parts of humans has been around for a very, very, very long time. And for the people, the participants in my study and the participants I've talked to all over the world in this community, they have very, very similar stories. They don't, they feel great. And then once they hit puberty, something changes about them. They don't know why they can't do anything to make themselves healthier. And suddenly by accident, usually they come in contact with blood or by nature, they just know instinctually that they should take it. And it makes them feel great. Or if they're a psychic vampire, they might be really enthralled by giving people massages or doing something near people. Of course, they're not aware, according to them, that they're zapping them of their energy 
And so later they kind of figure out what they are and they often will become more ethical in the way they, they take it. They'll ask the person, Hey, can I give you a massage? When I do, it'll be taking this energy from you. Or they'll, they'll take what they call ambient energy. They'll go to nightclubs where there's free flowing ambient energy in the air from all the people bumping and grinding and partying and dancing and stuff. So at least doing that, you don't have to worry about ethics because it's free energy just floating around in the air and they absorb it. But both of these, the psychic and sang sanguinarian vampires or sanguine vampires are similar in the sense that they have this need to consume blood or energy because they feel ill and lethargic, depressed and, and weak if they don't do so. Now are, are sanguine and sanguine vampires, are they the same as patients or people with what we call Renfield syndrome? Well, the, the psychiatrist who, came up with that term. He hates it now because, <laughs> because it was, it was supposed to be a joke. He was parroting the way, you know, there was all this new kind of psychobabble going around and mm -hmm. he didn't know that when he kind of published on this and talked about it, that it would take on a new life and become what he calls a monster and not be accepted into any of the DSMs. It's not a real term at all. Neither is clinical vampirism, but people started using it. And some clinicians even started writing and publishing and using these terms, even though they're not, at all authentic or established or accepted. But it's, it's, but if we look at the way people buy these terms, clinical vampirism and Renfield syndrome, they're not quite the same as what we're talking about. But then again, these, these terms aren't real either. So, but typically when you think of Renfield syndrome, which of course is named after the character in Dracula who consumes animals, zoophagia, the, you know, the consumption of, of animals, they call it that because these people have an obsession for drinking blood, but they equate it more with like a, an eating disorder. They want to drink it, not because it makes them healthier, but because they just have a need or want to just drink it all the time, including the drinking of one's own blood or auto vampirism. So that's not the, really the same as the human vampires that I've studied because they don't have an obsession like an eating disorder. They have something missing out of their own vitality mm -hmm. and it, it can be replaced or substituted by the consumption of blood vampirism when it's defined, even though it is often conflated with Renfield syndrome, sometimes they're the same thing. Sometimes they're not, doesn't matter because they're not rural terms anyway, but with clinical vampirism, it's more of a almost sexual obsession with blood. One, what we might call blood fetishes. Now blood fetishism is a real term describing people who get a fetish out of being around blood or having some of their own blood seep out or even drank by a vampire is, 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 you know, titillating for them. Of course, as long as it's done safely and, and no one's hurt and everyone understands each other's the existence of any blood poured pathogens, if they both get their blood tested, then of course there, there's no harm there. But uh, the two terms there don't really coincide with human vampires. Human vampires are not usually or ever sexually aroused by the blood they take. It's merely there as nourish nourishment for them because of something that their own bodies lack. Yeah, in the episode of The Unexplained William Shatner Show, where you go and have this experience with, I forget the gentleman's name, of New Orleans, mm -hmm. you let him, you let him, and you, so you, told, you told us earlier, you let him have some of your blood, and I watched the scene, and it was very clean, it was a very clean situation, yeah. it wasn't like he was there, like, a, you know, attacking you or anything, it was just simply like a couple pricks on the back, and I believe he told you, he was like, hey, you need some more fatty acids. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, the first time he drank my blood, I wasn't drinking enough water, which was very, very true. I still don't drink enough water. And he drank it and he was like, it's too, it, blood's always metallic, but it was especially metallic with mine. He's like, you don't drink enough water, dude. And I'm like, 
no, how did you know that? And he's like, I can just tell when I taste blood. Some of the, the sanguinary vampires can even tell or prefer certain blood types, according to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. That's really interesting. I just discovered a new blood type the other day called RH Null, or known as the Golden Blood. It's one of the most rare blood types that exist, and it's 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 hard to find. But yeah, it's called RH Null, known as the Golden Blood and the Hunt for the Golden okay. Blood. Who's um, the Null refer to? You know, I I hadn't got. I literally this is maybe two days ago that I discovered this on on a research rabbit hole, and I hadn't gone too much deeper into it. Okay. Besides the fact that it is known as the most rare blood type on the planet, which just leads us to to know that we we have even more blood types that are out there that are probably even more rare than rh null because it's just physically impossible to test everybody's blood on the planet we have we have so many humans so that's really fascinating um and yeah we only (laughs) drink more water we just need to drink more water this is just a healthy reminder everybody quick water break where are we at here here we uh, go quick question though the null and how is the null spelt N-U-L-L. Okay, gotcha. N-U-L-L. Okay. The reason I ask is because Noel, as in the scientific term Noel, because Richard Noel is the the psychiatrist who developed the term Renfield syndrome. And I've even been in touch with him before, and he thinks it's all a big joke, and he hates that it's become this way. So I figured certainly they didn't call it Noel because of Richard Noel. Well, it's like, it's funny. They call it R-H Noel, but that's his name. It's how it's spelled, right? Is R is his null is spelled. His null is spelled N O L L. Oh, but it's okay. still it still it still could be a play on null. Null, I think, means nothing or absence or kind of right. equilibrium or something like that. If I remember from chemistry, I don't know, but it still could be a place on his name, especially if it's R H null or something. That's fascinating. So real quick. Oh, go ahead, Mark. You have a, you have a, we're on the topic of blood and, and, you know, you mentioned the mound interest, interest of ours at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. I've read recently that when people are buried in the earth without maybe like a, a layer in between that deteriorates, DNA is distributed through the soil, and obviously blood is carrying DNA. So is there any information on how DNA plays into this relationship with, you know, sanguine vampires and and even, you know, medical cannibals? And, you know, does the DNA fuse into a person? Are we talking about, like, mutations here? I mean, am I just, like, you know, imagining because of fiction the the possibilities or, or, you know, what, what, how Hmm. does DNA factor in? Well, that is a really interesting question. There, there have been no studies that have gone that far. I could ask, though, this board that I sit on, it's called the Blood Project. It's through Harvard University Medical School and the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. There's a lot of hematologists that sit on the board, and maybe they could give some you know, insight into it, but there have never been a study where, where the, you know, first of all, there's never been a study of people to see any kind of, how do I word this? The results of people consuming blood, what of any effect that has on the body. Mm -hmm. Although I'm in the process of, of, of writing something that will explain just how much blood a human can have before it becomes detrimental to their, that has been discussed, but not in terms of any kind of benefit that comes as a result of consuming it. Certainly not what happens with the DNA. I imagine it does not do anything at all. The only kind of science that is behind the consumption of blood really boils down to sanguinary vampires before they 
consume someone's blood. They don't just kind of walk down the street or walk down Bourbon Street and say, hey, look at a homeless person. Hey, you want to make 20 bucks? You know, they, it's not like that. It's a, it's a very <laughs> stringent process for finding a person who might be open to this. And then you work out how they're paid, whether through you know monetarily or through perhaps sexual favors, who knows. But once that's agreed upon, that's when they both get their blood tested to kind of demonstrate they at least don't have any sort of bloodborne pathogens. So, but that's as far as the science has really gone with this exchange of fluids. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating. Huh. I mean, blood doesn't taste bad. It's weird, right? Like I've had, you know, a cut on here and I go, you know, and you get it and it doesn't. So I guess just like getting over that, hump that is that I'm, not, I'm actually this is i was like maybe if we could just get over the the, the thought of blood tasting we, we could all drink blood mm-hmm. that was kind of where that comment was alluding to but i i really honestly didn't mean to go there but it is interesting that the blood has almost like like no flavor but it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies if you will to consider drinking someone else's blood because i just don't know i'm like i would never like it scared the scared the crap out of me that i would just get whatever interesting things that they have even if they have right. none i'm like I just don't trust you, bud. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's, this is all, it's all really, really interesting. Where do you think the, where are you guys trying to go with the blood project? What is the blood project? Cause I know it's a big panel and you just described where, what is, what is some of the new workings you guys have going on on that journal? Well, we, we, we do have writings that appear on the website by different specialists. Sometimes they're invited. I'm supposed to have one coming up at some point soon on human vampirism, actually. It will be similar but, but different from our podcast that we have on there that you can check out if you go to the Blood Project's website. And there's, a web, there's an actual page for the podcast and one of the recent ones of about two months ago, two and a half months ago. I think it's already been that long. It involves me speaking with someone and you know, a much more kind of socio-scientific level about blood consumption in human vampires. But it's essentially a board that either consults a different bodies of doctors or consults, especially the public, on the very interesting facets of blood and the importance of blood and blood in popular culture, blood in artwork. Any, any and everything blood is what the Blood Project is about. In fact, because I don't want to get anything wrong, let me just look it up really quick and read to you the really quick description. So here we go. Right. There we go. So let's see here. Here's one short description. The overall goal of the blood project is to communicate the vital role of the blood in health and disease. The blood project leverages blood as a prism to explore the human body, spanning all organ systems and incorporating non-traditional areas into our content, including the history of medicine, comparative physiology, evolutionary medicine, literature in medicine, and art in medicine. The board members include everyone from people like me to some corporate heads who have medical backgrounds that deal in corporations that have something to do with medicines to a lot of hematologists and other kinds of, of medical industry experts. Oh, okay. So you guys get to get into the lot deeper scientific studies of that, which will be good for us to read and digest and, and to kind of help break down for other people who have an interest in this, in this study. I mean, I, I find it very interesting. I find the, the history of vampires and symbology of it and how it plays a role into modern culture and 
because we have such a big fascination with vampires in modern society that I think understanding it more on a level of, of how how blood even works and how it incorporates into into people's diet somehow is, is very fascinating. And to right. touch on something that we were talking about a lot earlier about, you know, ancestors doing and paying homage to some of their loved ones, you know, with potential, you know, drinking their blood or, or consuming the flesh of like even talking about, you know, drinking the blood and consuming the flesh of Jesus right back in the day. Right. Right. When indigenous cultures would actually, you know, there was a time when humans really appreciated the meat that we were eating and we would get a hunt and we would we would have the animal and we would we would actually praise it and say, thank you so much for the sustenance and use every single piece of that animal in order to give all of our community the proper vitality that we needed to prosper. And right. somewhere along the lines, due to, you know, everything that we see in, in modern society, we've taken that worship out of our food and we've taken mm-hmm. that understanding out of our uh, nutrition in general. And so that's why I think these types of studies are really interesting to look at and 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 how they how they have shifted over time over the millennia into modern society it's i just wanted to bring that back up because there you know there was a time and not too much of a distant past where we actually you know paid homage to the food that we were eating and, and absolutely absolutely and in 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 part that is what the blood project is doing in fact the vision statement which we know what we do, but this is really what we're trying to achieve. And I'll read it here. It's very short, it's just one sentence. It's remote exploration and deeper understanding of the role of blood in health, injury, and disease integrated with the patient's experience and in individual, I'm sorry, experience in pursuit of enhanced individualized care. So not just educating people about blood and the history of blood, but also understanding blood in terms of disease, but also using that and the experiences of the patients and their knowledge of blood to help create better individualized care. So for example, one of the questions I was asked on the podcast was if a doctor has a patient that kind of, you know, self identifies themselves to the doctor and what should the doctor do? How should they respond? And we talked a little bit about that, but if we have further pieces on the history, like you described, I think that would help not only give the general public a better understanding of where we came from, but also doctors that, you know, it, it wasn't so weird a long time ago. <laughs> and they know this from their histories they've studied that blood wasn't this taboo subject. And that mm-hmm. if you had a patient identify themselves as a vampire right there in front of you, you don't have to freak out. And this is, you know, a really kind of specialized way you can, you can address that topic with a person without it coming off as something crazy that you need to call a psychiatrist for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, understanding the history of blood, like you said, I think would help remedy a lot of the misunderstandings that we have. Well, and- on, an, on another note, do you think that part of why there's this need with sanguine vampires is because of the changes in the way that humans interact with food? I mean, what Roman just described, the industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution that brought us into the modern world. Do you think maybe there's a deficit in our consumption of meat that's maybe causing this extra need for sanguine vampires to, you know, integrate blood into their diet? Well, I will say that I think we're able to find or detect or take note of more of these sanguinarian or sanguine vampires today because in the past, when you did have access to blood, you, you had access to every part of the animal and it was not unusual 
to to have dishes that involve the blood, like blood sausage or blood pudding. There are lots of cultures all over the world that integrate blood into a lot of their dishes. And it's not unusual today to go to a specialty butcher shop to ask for cow's blood or whatnot. So in the past, they probably didn't think of themselves as vampiric-like because they had access to the whole part of the animal. And plus, whatever part of it you consume wasn't deemed as unusual or weird, but because we've taken the, the uh, not the worship of food, but the, the understanding that food is important, that the meat is important, that acquiring the meat is a big deal. We've taken that out of it. And so it, you've taken out also the ability of people, especially sanguinarian, sanguinarian vampires, to access all of the animal, but also in, in preventing them from doing that as easily as accessibly, you're also taking out the kind of understanding of the meat as being important to the point now that if people, let's say they really want the blood and, and even if they describe it as an almost in an almost ethereal way, like they're wanting to worship the animal or, or take the blood in a way that really does the animal justice because you're using all parts of it, people would think it was taboo or weird. So I think you're getting at a point there, not that the change in the way we respond to meat and food is creating sanguinarians, but that the sanguinarians are coming about because they have less access to all of the animal. And that's because of meat being so readily available to everyone that we don't really place any significance on the acquisition of meat and the animal and other parts of the animal. So I think it's all intertwined. Both of what you're saying, I think, is all intertwined in the same story. Absolutely. And the fact that, you know, a factory farm is going to drain as much of the blood as possible because, you know, blood is found dirty. If you were to find, you know, juicy meat in your prepackaged chicken thighs, you know, when you're getting chicken thighs the size of like this huge ham hock, which is just unreal. It's just unreal. If you've ever harvested a chicken and, you know, in the wild, they're just not that big, but they drain all the blood of the animal containing minerals, containing chain amino acids and things. So yeah, like I think that the changing and the shifting of the soil itself also having less of what they call humus, which is like humic and fulvic acid, which is essential minerals, you know, (laughs) everything within it's, it's interesting because most things within the atmosphere are at least contained within our atmosphere of our body, at least to a minor extent. Like there's everything that exists within the atmosphere of the earth exists within our earthly atmosphere of our body. And so Mm. like there's all these little bits and pieces that you need to pull together and have this like full optimization. And that's some like higher spiritual type of talk, you know, to kind of bring in all of this every aspect of the planet into your body and to have all these branches. But when you start to go missing of them, you start to look like, where can I, what am I lacking in life? Why do I feel like I'm I'm missing something? Like there's there's something in me that's missing. And I think a lot of it becomes because we are just naturally demineralized as a society due to the nature of the food that we eat. Because one, it's like, first of all, hard to even know what to eat and, 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 and to work and to live and to, to do these things and to pay all the bills and then to just think about, well, what does a natural mineralized meal even consist of? Right. Yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. In fact, all of these between all three of us are fair game. If you asked real vampires, what's, what's the deal? What's how, did, where did this come from? They don't know either. They would love it if there were further studies, they just know how they feel and they mm-hmm. know that blood makes them feel better. And it's not because they previously loved 
True Blood a lot. They decided to try it. It's just, it happened. It did happen one day and they realized they felt better and it, it became a staple in their diet because if they don't have it, then they feel very, very ill. And some of them have tested themselves by seeing what happens if they don't consume blood and, and they often fall very ill, even if they eat healthily and stuff. Wait, there's this not any, there aren't any studies that, that document the the power of blood on the human body. Of course, even if there were studies, I imagine a doctor wouldn't find anything, but they might say it's just psychosomatic. At that point, if the person's consuming blood and we're studying it and they know we're studying it, so now their body feels better, who knows? But the origin story is really what kicked it for me with them when I heard the origin story and it all made sense. And plus, we've been documenting cases like this since at least the early 70s of people writing into very specific fan clubs and saying, hey, I have condition i think i might be a vampire i need blood if i don't i feel ill or sick and i'm not even a vampire fan but maybe you can help me maybe you understand more than i do and so it's been around for a long time and the mm. stories that really bewildered me from the human vampires i've studied is that their stories were just like the ones i had read about that were documented in the early 70s the point where i even asked them the study participants what are you reading like what have you been reading because i was hoping they would say the books that i have and they were like nothing like they didn't even know that books like that existed. So that was the real clincher for me. And when I hung around them enough, I realized that they were, they just were excellent people. I mean, I feel safer in a room of 20 vampires than I do in a, a room of 20 normal people. To be honest. <laughs> okay. I have one more, one more thing on the new Orleans topic, because I found this really interesting and you brought up alchemy earlier and there's this story of the most famous new Orleans vampire by the name of Saint Germain. Now it's not Jacques Saint Germain, or is it Jacques Saint Germain? It is Jacques Saint Germain, and and I, I think I think it is Jacques Saint Germain. Jacques, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the story? What's the story that you found behind him? It's a really fascinating story. Oh, I I don't know. It's it the the folkloric vampiric tales. There are so many people that have done that in New Orleans, or that give to, walking tours on that. That it it's an area I didn't even want to cover, just because there are already so many other people doing it. Yeah. yeah, but I but I think if the story goes, this is someone who lived in the French Quarter for a very long time and would be known to remain around for well beyond their human years and also they might have an interest in consuming blood and they might even be the same person as the count saint germain this historical figure that would eventually be used as a stand-in for vampires in literature from europe mm -hmm. maybe this count saint germain came to new orleans and then of course there are stories where people say 20 years ago they would encounter someone that gave off this air like they were a lot older than they appeared and they were dressed ornately or old-fangledly and they were speaking in a way that was old fangled and there was something about them that made them seem very intelligent and suave. And they might too have wanted blood from whoever they were talking to. So that's kind of the story as far as I know of mm. the Jacques St. Germain that it could possibly be the same person in Europe, but yeah, but that, that's as far as I know. And it, it's, it's just kind of become the folklore of new Orleans for the most part. Yeah. And there's that, I mean, that story of count St. Germain and, is really fascinating when you when you look at some of like the alchemical texts or the antiquated alchemical text, you know, of finding mm. the philosopher's stone, this anti-aging quality of the alchemist and the, the deep alchemical understanding of immortality. It kind of does play a role, alchemy and vampirism in that sense mm. of like trying to prolong life and consciousness and to 
like potentially also maybe just etherically evaporate or ascend right. another yeah. essence as well. Ascend in essence. Yeah. I, I can definitely words. see, definitely see the, the, uh, the similarities there. By the way, I, I think I can give you all about 10 more minutes. So if there's anything you've been dying to ask now is the time. Okay. Okay. Well, one more thing. Yes. What the, the last question I had is there's this movie called Renfield coming out with none mm-hmm. other than Nicholas Cage. And I was I was hoping that they had contacted you, one of the experts in, you know, in the field of vampirism to to have the screenplay be written. And yeah. are you looking forward to even seeing this movie? I think it's a comedy. So, yeah, I, I am looking forward to it because I love the I've tend to lo- like a lot of Nicolas Cage Cage's movies. And plus, I think I was living in New Orleans when he still had a house there. I definitely saw him in the Garden District at what was the store's name? It was on St. Charles Avenue. It was a huge store that that sold CDs and books and whatnot. Anyway, he was just right there in the CD aisle, just 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 chilling, looking at CDs, and his hair was disheveled. It was really blonde too, so he must have done some recent movie where he had to have blonde hair. But I just could not believe it when I was looking at a CD and I kind of look up and three feet next to me is Nicolas Cage, and I was like, Holy crap. But yeah, but his script, I mean, the, the, the film, the, the aesthetic they're going for him is, is hearkening back to Bela Lugosi from the Universal Pictures. And that's the biggest reason I really enjoy it is it's not pretending to be anything other than what it is. It's, it, 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 it's a comedy in the sense, if, if, if I get the right vibe from the trailer, it's going to be very camp. So it's not trying to be funny, but it's, you're laughing the whole time, which of course is pretty much the definition of camp. And it, the, the look of Cage's Dracula just looks wonderful. And of course he's such a odd actor. And of course that he's a method actor for, for, I mean, how should I put this? He is in many ways a character actor, but the way he takes on roles, he's also a method actor. The way One he of the kind best. of becomes that. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Anytime there's a new take on the Dracula story, I'm all about it because I love vampires, but Dracula is my man. He is absolutely my man. <laughs> right on thank you yeah nick cage even has that uh, pyramid shaped tomb down there in one of those cemeteries in new orleans that he bought preemptively uh, i guess what? that's where he chose to it's... be buried but if he if he is the C- count saint germain i have heard rumors that <laughs> this cage has lived for thousands of years so who knows maybe that was uh, just a ruse like yeah there's my to to show people that he's maybe gonna die one day he buys a tomb yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, they, they, I think it all started when someone found that old Civil War picture about five years ago or something like that. And it, it shows a guy that looks just like Nicolas Cage in a, a uniform. And everyone's like, oh, my God. So Nicolas Cage really is, you know, undying. And he's this obviously this the same Civil War soldier in this picture. So that's really when the, the whole kind of mythology about his age came about. But I can see why he would take a role on like the one he's doing. Not the first time he's played a vampire. Or I was going to say, was a vampire. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's played multiple roles with va- like with vampires. One of the movies, because I've been trying to actually catch up on all the Nick Cage vampire movies recently, and one of the ones with John Malkovich, I, I was hoping that you'd seen yeah. this one as well. Was it the In the Shadow of a Vampire yeah, with Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich? Yeah, absolutely. I saw it at the theater in 2000 when it came out. I was in college at the time, and it was a great film. It was definitely a, a breath of, of fresh air. Genius. It was a great film. Oh, wonderful. I, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly, I'm, I'm pleasantly plump with today's conversation, John. Uh, I thank you so much. Mark, do you have any, do you have any final thoughts before we sign out today? Yeah, I love 
this conversation. I guess I'm pleasantly plump too, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> it was a pleasure getting to know your work, Dr. Browning, and I appreciate you taking the time to share this information with us because I'm sure it's going to be stupefying to my audience who probably isn't familiar that there are real vampires out there and they aren't trying to suck your blood. They ask for permission first. That's fantastic. They do. They do. They're, they're some of the, the best, nicest people I've ever met in my life. And I've, I've loved working with them for the last, uh, gosh, what is it now? About 11 or 12 years, almost 13 years. But thank you gentlemen for having me on. And, and if, if I can come on again, if the, if the, the Renfield movie comes out and you want to talk about it in relation to Dracula or anything like that, anything that happens in the, in the cultural moment that would require another voice like mine, just let me know and I'll come back. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Maybe we get a vampire round table conversation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Is there any place folks can go to get your work, any place that they can go to support you in particular, anything you'd like to promote to the audience before we wrap up here? Well, that's very kind of you. I archive a lot of my shorter works at my academia.edu profile. So they just Google my name. One of the first links that comes up, they Google John Edgar Browning. One of the first links will be my academia.edu profile. And I keep a lot of my works archived there. As far as the books, many of them are so expensive because they're academic books that I don't usually recommend you buy it. But I would recommend if you'd like to go to your local library and ask them to purchase a copy. That way they can check it out and other mm -hmm. people and that really saves the cost too, because they're so damn expensive. But, but if you want a book that's not expensive, but is the go-to or the standard text when it comes to Dracula, the, the Norton critical editions are the go-to texts for a number of, of canonical works from, from Jane Eyre to Frankenstein, you name it. The, the first edition of the Norton critical edition, Dracula came out in 97 to mark the centenary of Dracula's publication. But the second edition was released about two years ago now. And that was, co-edited by David J. Skull, horror historian, who co-edited the first edition, and now he uh, co-edited this edition with, with yours truly. So if they want an inexpensive book that's under 20 bucks, but also the go-to text in terms of the you know really authentic version of the original Dracula with lots of cool documents in the back and essays, then they could definitely check out the Norton Critical Edition of Dracula, the second edition. It has Nosferatu on the cover, Count Warlock. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Browning. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Well, let us know what you thought about this and make sure to look up Dr. Browning's work. And if also just an FYI, if you don't have the Academia app, access to so many great, awesome PDFs that you can download at the, at the touch of a finger. I highly recommend getting the Academia app. It's one of my number one resources for research. Just another sugar-coated piece of candy for the audience. And thank you again, Dr. John. We will talk to you again, hopefully, and have a great rest of your day, brother. Absolutely. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Take care. Cheers. All right, and there it is, another Swapcast special edition of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and the Rising from the Ashes podcast. Roman is, of course, just one of two great co-hosts on the Rising from the Ashes podcast. Shout out to Dan. Go and check that show out. Uh, you can support them and tune in to their show wherever you listen to this show. And, of course, Roman is uh, one of four great 
hosts along with myself on the esoteric america podcast which you can find on our youtube channel on rockfin just search my family thinks i'm crazy and you will find our show esoteric america if you prefer audio we do have an audio feed as well so please do check that out currently we are covering california the emerald triangle and that has nothing to do with what we talked about today vampires very spooky stuff and uh, it's kind of interesting roman seems to be uh kind of uh i don't know uh, fascinated with these more morbid subjects than i'm used to so yeah it's it's cool that he invited me to to join him for this i don't know how many more uh, of these style interviews we're gonna do but whenever Roman has a guest that he'd like me to help interview, I'm happy to be there. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. I think it, it's kind of interesting considering there are some connections to that type of um, weirdness in New England with the Paracelsian alchemy that was being practiced in certain parts of New England in the colonial period. So, let me know dig further into that and see what comes out but uh more news in that realm on the substack so go and support on substack of course if you are on the eight dollar tier or above on patreon i will automatically subscribe you to the substack we just got a couple new patrons this week so i'm going to give them all a shout out but yeah like i'm saying if you sign up at the eight dollar tier then you'll automatically be uh, pushed over onto the Substack as well. Because why not? It's only fair. And if you prefer Substack and you just want to support on Substack, you can get the video and audio content as well as my articles that I've been writing and uh, currently working on the new uh, documentary that I'm going to be putting out, sort of a podcast documentary. So I haven't been writing as much on the Substack in this past few weeks, but I assure you that there will be more articles there. And uh, yeah, please do get in touch with us there on the Substack, of course, or the Patreon. But I want to just give a shout out to some of the new folks who signed up. That's right, Kelsey recently signed up for the $8 tier, so she'll be getting uh, Substack subscribed right now. Uh, shout out to Mimi, shout out to JJ, shout out to Benjamin, shout out to Dylan, shout out to the Magic Wolf, uh, Michael D, Adam C, Brian N, Pooh Bear, Barry Chan, <laughs> Cheryl Smith, and I'm not saying that the way, okay, that's how it, she wrote it, Bay. Chan, okay? I know what you're thinking. No. <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, Cheryl Smith, and then we have Qui-Gon Jin and Tonic, uh, Seiji Boy, Alexa TR, uh, Gehrig, Matt, Robert S, and uh, I think I've given everybody else a shout-out. So, awesome stuff. If you didn't get a shout-out, send me a message on Patreon, and I will give you a shout-out. If you want a shout-out, sign up on Patreon. 
We've got a bunch of options, the $5 tier, the $8 tier, and like I said, if you sign up at the $8 tier, you do get access to everything on the Substack. Um, but for $5, you get all the bonus content, you get early access to every episode, and you also get video content as well for the episodes that uh, I don't want to, or for the episodes that I, I don't mind risking putting on YouTube because you got to understand if I'm going to grow the YouTube channel, I need to be careful what I put on there, you know, and I'm not placating YouTube censorship. What I'm doing is I'm considering YouTube for what it's worth. It's like a spot on Main Street, right? Uh, we may not have a big presence there on Main Street, but at least we're there. You see a couple of the, you know, softer episodes that don't ruffle as many feathers and then you get, uh, you know, you get into the, the deeper stuff here on the podcast or on one of the supportive sides of it, Rockfin, Patreon, Substack. So that's the, that's the goal with YouTube. I think Esoteric America is a pretty cool show and definitely doesn't ruffle feathers uh, or hasn't yet. Not saying we can't because there's definitely the uh, ability to or the uh, possibility, the probability, the potentiality. So we'll see. But either way, um, I am excited to grow that channel because YouTube, you know, whatever, they, they kind of are lame. But at least there's this like, membership side of it and we're going to see what I can do with that. Uh, my, my YouTube is kind of locked up right now. I'm trying to figure out how to uh, get my money out of it because they have uh, I've accrued some money over the past few months on the YouTube channel. So when I'm able to do that, then I will be putting more uh, attention into YouTube. Okay, so stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, gotta give a shout out to the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. My man Garrett's got all kinds of custom packaging he sent me this really cool hit kit with the new haven city colony seal on it and uh yeah kind of neat holding it right now but he's got so many varieties from the dank bank to the classic uh dube tube style you know the the plastic ones and it's not just uh plastic you can hold your lighter and two that's right two joints or blunts so go and check out the Hit Kit. They got a bunch of different uh, varieties from the Swiss kit that slides open like a Swiss army knife to the uh, Hermes Trismegistus edition. That's what I'm going to call it. That has a QR code with the Cabalion on it. So if you like sparking conversations up around a blunt, use the Hit Kit to get the conversation going. It's a great way to do it. Um, we've got a really awesome episode coming out this Wednesday with Chris Milligan and the Skull and Bones documentary podcast series that I've been talking so much about uh, will be available. The first episode will be available this week on Wednesday evening, and I'm going to put a trailer out on the free feed. If you want to listen to that series, you're going to have to be on either the Substack, the Patreon uh, possibly the Rockfin. I don't know that I'm going to put it out on Rockfin right away. If I do, it'll probably be a week uh, later because they're 
you know, there there's a bunch of people on Rockfin. Not all of them are there for me. So this this is going to be a special project that I only want to share with supporters first. We're going to be releasing it for uh, everybody at some point in time, uh, but at least for this year, at least for now, for the first season, uh, it'll be supporters only. That's the decision I had to make because, well, uh, I don't really have time to do extra podcasts. You know, I'm already, I already have my hands full with the two or three that I do now. So to add another podcast in the mix is tough. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research, so it's kind of fun. And I'm going to hopefully parlay this research into uh, bigger opportunities uh, in, in my real life, like a in-person tour of New Haven or even uh, some sort of book series on New Haven. So uh, if you'd like to see that come true, if you'd like to help me make my goals a reality or achieve my goals, rather, um, support that's the best you can do. Support, even if it's just a one-time donation. Uh, we have ways you can do that. It's listed in the episode description from Bitcoin to PayPal to Venmo to Cash App. Uh, the, the handles are all in there. Uh, if you want content, you can go and check out Patreon, Rockfin, Substack. You heard me say it a thousand times. I should mention the Ko-Fi store. And a shout out to uh, Ron up in Alaska. I just sent him out a wire wrap. And also, shout out to Lou uh, Lewis, who, who got another wire wrap. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. If you guys like jewelry, if you want some unique custom art, go and check out the Ko-Fi store. The link is in the description. And I still have some, some that are available. I just picked up some new crystals yesterday, and, uh, and I wire wrapped something new last night. So, yeah. Be on the lookout for uh, some new items being added to the store. And as for me, as for this episode, we are out of here, folks. Thanks for tuning in and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Peace. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are 
We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robbing for his plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap Dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy. You might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.